제주도는 대한민국에서 가장 큰 섬으로 아름다운 자연경관을 갖는 축복을 받았습니다. 신선한 공기와 맑은 물, 청정한 바다, 다양한 크기의 화산은 이러한 자연경관에 아름다움을 더해줍니다. 제주의 아름다운 자연환경 중 일부는 유네스코 세계자연유산으로 등재되었습니다. 등재된 유산으로는 한라산 국립공원, 성산일출봉, 그리고 검은얼음 용안동굴계가 있습니다. 또한 한라산은 그 아름다움과 생물종 다양성으로 2002년부터 유네스코 생물권 보전지역으로 보호되었으며 360개의 기생화산인 오름을 품고 있습니다. 제주도는 천혜의 자연유산뿐 아니라 이를 지키기 위한 노력으로도 유명합니다. 사실상 제주도민들의 가슴은 제주도와 하나가 되어 고동치고 있습니다. 귀중한 자연환경을 보존하여 미래세대를 위한 유산으로 남기는 것은 제주도민에게 있어 가장 중요한 관심사입니다. 우리는 자연과 함께 살아가면서 우리의 아름다운 환경을 보존하기 위해서 최선을 다할 것입니다. 우리는 선조들의 지혜로운 생활 방식을 따르며 녹색 소비를 실천할 것입니다. 우리의 문화유산과 우리의 공동체적인 삶을 잘 보존해 나갈 겁니다. 우리는 지속가능한 발전을 위해 친환경적이고 생태적 활동을 지원해 나갈 겁니다. 우리는 환경보호와 세계평화를 위해 적극적으로 참여할 겁니다. 2009년 9월 21일 제주도의 49개 시민단체가 공동으로 아이건강과 지속가능지구촌 제주국제컨퍼런스를 공동주최하여 사회적으로 가장 중요한 두 가지 주제에 대해서 논의했습니다. 바로 아이들의 건강과 기후변화입니다. 유기농 비건에 초점을 맞춘 이 특별한 행사는 행성의 온도를 낮추고 또한 어린이들의 영향을 개선하는 해결책으로 유기농 비건을 제시했습니다. 이 컨퍼런스에 참석한 정부의 중요한 인사들로는 김태환 제주특별자치도지사, 양성원 제주특별자치도 교육감 등이 있습니다. 그리고 여기 참석한 환경전문가로는 유엔정부간기후변화위원회 의장인 라젠드라 파차우리 박사, 그리고 네덜란드 환경평가국의 기후와 지구촌 지속가능성 부서의 주프 오데 로휘스 부장이 있습니다. 또한 의학계를 이끄는 저명한 의사들도 전문 지식을 함께 나누었습니다. 여기엔 미국 휴메인 소사이어티 보건축산 책임자인 마이클 그레거 박사, 권위있는 내과의사이자 영양학 전문가인 조엘 펄먼 박사, 책임있는 의료를 위한 의사회 창립자이자 회장인 닐 버나드 박사, 미국에서 유명한 맥두걸 프로그램의 창립자이자 의학부문 원장인 존 맥두걸 박사, 한국의 저명한 신경외과 전문의인 대구의료원 황성수 박사 등이 포함됩니다. 또한 많은 언론사들이 이 행사를 취재했습니다. MBC, KBS, CBS, 아리랑 라디오 등의 방송사와 한국일보, 한겨레신문, 연합뉴스, 제주일보 등의 신문들과 미디어 제주, 제주소리 등의 인터넷 뉴스 미디어에서도 이 행사를 보도했습니다. 이 행사의 귀빈으로 화상회의를 통한 참석을 초청받으신 칭하이 무상사께서는 너그럽게 초대를 수락하셨습니다. 
화상회의 제목은 아이건강과 지속가능지구촌 제주국제컨퍼런스로 2009년 9월 21일 대한민국 제주도에서 개최되었습니다. Grace, so how do you like Jeju so far? It's an amazingly beautiful place. Well, glad to hear that. It's not only beautiful, but it's also unique as well. Three places on the Jeju Island are UNESCO World Heritage Sites, and those represent over 10% of the island. Let's introduce Jeju Island to the rest of the world through this video. 대한민국의 서남단에 위치한 아름다운 섬, 제주도. 한국에서 가장 큰 섬인 제주도는 오랜 전통과 천혜의 자연이 어우러진 섬입니다. 섬의 중앙에는 해발 1950m의 한라산이 솟아 있으며 다양한 크기와 형태를 지닌 소화산들이 곳곳에 자리 잡고 있습니다. 제주도의 화산섬과 용암동굴은 뛰어난 학술적 가치와 경관적 아름다움으로 2007년 대한민국 최초로 유네스코 세계자연유산에 등재되었습니다. 제주도에서 자연유산으로 등재된 곳은 한라산 천연보호구역과 성산일출봉 그리고 검은오름 용암동굴계로 제주도 면적의 약 10%를 차지합니다. 한라산은 제주를 상징하는 산이자 대한민국에서 가장 높은 산입니다. 한라산은 그 아름다움과 생물학적 가치로 인해 2002년 유네스코 생물권 보존 지역으로 지정되어 보호받아 왔습니다. 한라산은 360여 개의 기생화산인 오름을 품고 있으며 정상의 분화구에는 백록담이라는 호수가 자리 잡고 있습니다. 검은오름 용암동굴계는 지구의 생성 역사를 보여주는 또 하나의 자연유산입니다. 제주도의 용암동굴계에는 모두 9개의 동굴이 있습니다. 약 30만 년 전에 생성된 이 용암동굴들은 생성 시기가 매우 오래되었음에도 불구하고 아름다운 경관이 잘 보존되어 있습니다. 
용암 동굴이면서도 석회장식의 풍부하고 다양한 특징을 보여주고 있어 세계 용암 동굴 중에서 독특한 모습입니다. 마지막으로 성산 일출봉은 해안가에 위치한 화산입니다. 성산 일출봉은 그 독특한 구조와 특징으로 수성화산의 형성을 이해하는 데 있어 세계적 수준의 가치를 가지고 있습니다. 제주도는 천혜의 자연유산뿐만 아니라 이를 지키기 위한 생태적인 노력으로도 유명합니다. 제주도는 2004년 7월 한국에서 최초로 주민 발의로 친환경 농산물 학교 급식 조례를 제정, 친환경 학교 급식을 시작했습니다. 자연을 지키고 자연 속에서 살아가는 사람들을 지키기 위한 제주의 노력. 그러나 기후변화라는 전 지구적인 위협은 새로운 노력이 필요할 때라는 것을 일깨워줍니다. 제주의 푸른 바다와 푸른 숲에서는 지구온난화로 인한 생태계 변화가 소리 없이 일어나고 있습니다. 지금 제주연안에서 가장 그 두드러지게 나타나는 현상이 그 해조류의 감소입니다. 저희 연구소에서 관측한 지난 80년간 자료를 분석한 결과 제주도 같은 경우는 수온 상승폭이 1.5도씨가 상승해서 다른 지역에 비해서 비교적 높은 편으로 나타나고 있습니다. 그래서 이제 바다의 사막화란 말을 씁니다. 그래서 해조류 자체가 어떤 광합성 작용을 하기 때문에 CO2 조절에 있어서도 상당히 중요한 역할을 하고 그리고 무엇보다 중요한 것은 다양한 그 수산 생물의 산란 처라든가 은신처 그리고 먹이를 먹을 수 있는 어떤 성육장 그런 해중림이 감소함으로써 그런 생물들이 어, 점차 이제 감소를 하게 되는 그런 결과를 낳게 됩니다. 그 제주도의 중앙에 위치한 한라산은 해발 1950m인데요. 해발 고도에 따라서 지구 온난화와 같은 기후변화에 의해서 식생의 이동 이것을 뚜렷하게 관찰할 수 있는 그런 대표적인 지역이라고 볼 수가 있겠죠. 1도씨가 올라갔을 때 수직적으로는 식생대가 약 150m 정도 이동한다고 보고 있습니다. 그 식생대 이동에 따라서 아한대에 자라고 있는 고유한 식물들 한라송다리와 같이 한라산에서만 볼수 있는 극지고산식물인 경우는 기후변화에 의해서 멸종 같은 것을 초래할 수 있는 대표적인 식물이라고 볼수 있겠습니다. 푸른 하늘과 푸른 바다, 높은 산과 깊은 동굴, 그리고 아름다운 사람들. 급변하는 기후변화에서 제주를 지키고 보존하려는 노력. 그리고 범세계적인 지구온난화에 맞서 지구를 보호하려는 노력 제주에서 이끌어 나갈 것입니다 What an amazing island, Kelly Well, yes, Koreans sure are proud of Jeju But you know what? What? Um, Jeju is already noticing the effects of climate change Yes, climate change is becoming more evident all over the world causing rising sea levels, floods, droughts, and many other serious imbalances to our ecosystem. We will have to halt climate change if we want to preserve this wondrous beauty of Jeju's landscape and if we want to protect the most precious resource of this island. And what would that be? Children. Children. In North America, we have an ancient Native American saying that goes like this. We do not inherit this earth from our ancestors. We are borrowing it 
from our children. And yes, that is precisely the reason why we need to act right now. Yes, but what should we do first? Let's find out what many distinguished VIPs from around the world are saying. In the future, if we don't hack as soon as possible, is the only thing that I believe has the power to fundamentally end the march of civilization as we know it. You will have a catastrophe, add it uh, to another catastrophe. Climate change means catastrophically violent weather, like wildfires and devastation, rising sea levels, rising food prices, to the spread of disease. <laughs> if the future of the world. Dependent on me, what would I do? The North Polar ice cap is melting so fast. But what seems to me to be important is that some of the effects we are witnessing now are happening twice as fast as scientists were predicting just five years ago. A report. Issued earlier this year by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, concluded both that global temperatures are rising, that this is caused largely by human activities. And if you look at the fourth assessment report of the IPCC, we've assessed several stabilization scenarios. In 2010, there could already be as many as 50 million environmentally displaced persons due to climate change, desertification. And deforestation. Experts tell us that the situation underlying the crisis is not a temporary one, and it's getting more and more difficult every day. And there's no guarantee that human civilization can survive. The doomsday clock of climate change is ticking ever faster towards midnight. We are simply not reacting quickly enough. Do we need to move faster to answer the question? Yes, we do, because we have less time than we thought we had. So climate change is obviously going to have a major negative impact. The scale and the pace of environmental change at the beginning of the 21st century are a serious wake-up call to us as human beings on this planet. We know without a doubt that global warming is a reality, and the question today is not. 
is it happening and not is it bad, but what are we going to do about it? We are all part of the problem of global warming. Let us all be part of the solution. The challenge you face is to prove to people that you are serious about adaptation to the unavoidable. Meat production and consumption is hugely intensive in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. More than all cars, trucks and ships added together. Unless we change our food choices, nothing else matters because it is meat that is destroying most of our forests. It's meat that pollutes the waters. It is meat that is creating disease, which leads to all our money being diverted to hospitals. So um, it's the first choice for anybody who wants to save the earth. The food we eat and how it's grown and the kind of food we eat uh, matters a lot. Everything comes uh, with an environmental price, uh, beef production in particular. We consume far too much meat in this world. The stairs where the climate problem is, our meat consumption. Something that's harmful even for human health. I do eat a lot of vegetarian meals. I, I think that's something we can all do. That's one of the easiest ways uh, that we can make an immediate and quite substantial impact. There are some wonderful um, environmental benefits in terms of uh, you know, taking a couple of steps lower down the food chain. And the choice we face is a, t is a really simple one, actually. Just for one day or more than that, become a vegetarian. Let us approach climate change not simply as a looming future threat, but as a present opportunity to work together. The time for action is now. What can I, what can the government do to help? What can you do to help? How can we do this together? And it's about what we do from this point on and this point forward. Individuals can take action. We have to try our And as individuals, through the choices we make, the purchases we make. If we must understand this and take the necessary actions, then we actually have a much better situation. Then if you eat less meat, you will be healthier and so would the planet. Then there's some kind of realization of individual responsibility to take care of this planet. Our generation has inherited an incredibly beautiful world and it's in, really in our hands whether our children inherit the same world. That is our duty, so that our children can have a decent quality of life on this planet. We cannot be anything less than courageous and revolutionary in our approach to tackling climate change. It's a win-win situation if you eat less meat. Living in harmony with the natural world is the only way for the future. Six billion people, one planet, one chance to get it right. Big wedge, go green and save our planet. Very impressive and strong messages there. Um, Grace, luckily, we have right here in Jeju those who are working very hard to fight climate change and to protect our children. Yes, and we're going to be hearing from several of them. First, let's welcome Mr. Song Dae-jin, the head of Jeju Coalition for Children's Health and the chief organizer of today's conference. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
물심양면으로 지원해 주신 스프림마스터스 텔레비전 관계자분들과 칭하이머 선사님께 감사의 말씀을 드립니다. 오늘 우리는 생명을 존중하는 지구촌의 여러분들과 함께 아이 건강과 지속가능이라는 주제로 이야기 마당을 펼쳐가려고 합니다. 지구촌이 하나가 되어 어린이들을 건강하게 농촌을 활기차게 지구촌을 청정하게 라는 우리의 다음 세대를 위한 성스러운 일이 반드시 실현되길 바랍니다. 감사합니다. 안녕하세요. We would like to introduce to you some of our very distinguished guests. Please welcome each of them with a warm round of applause. The Honorable Mr. Kim Tae-hwan, the Governor of Jeju Special Self-Governing Province. <laughs> Mr. Yang Song-on, Superintendent of Jeju Special Self-Governing Office of Education. Reverend Cha Hung-do, Chief of People's Coalition for Children's Health. <laughs> Professor Im Jae-taek, Chief of Korean Society for Echo Early Childhood Education. <laughs> Mr. Kim Tae-sung, Chief of Jeju Agenda 21. Thank you to our special guests and to each and every one of you for attending this important event. Let's now hear from some of our distinguished guests. First, we are deeply grateful to welcome the Governor of Jeju Special Self-Governing Province, the Honorable Mr. Kim Tae-hwan. Please welcome him with your warmest applause. Hello, 이 해결을 위해 열리고 있습니다. 이러한 문제로 지구촌 여러분과 고민을 함께 나누고 그 대책을 모색하게 되는 이 자리를 함께하게 된점 영광스럽게 생각합니다. 이러한 뜻있는 제주국제컨퍼런스에 소중한 시간을 내어주신 존경하는 IPCC 파차우리 의장님께 진심어린 감사의 말씀을 드립니다. 또한 이번 기회에 세계적인 석학이신 주프 오테로피스 
마이클 크레저, 존 맥두걸, 닐 버나드, 조엘 폴맨 선생님의 조호신 말씀과 함께 이러한 말씀들을 정책에 반영해 나갈 수 있게 되어 매우 뜻깊게 생각합니다. 무엇보다도 그동안 이번 행사를 위해 수고를 아끼지 않으신 황성수님, 이창흥님, 이용중님께도 진심어린 감사의 말씀 드립니다. 자연의 보고인 아름다운 제주는 이미 국제기구로부터 세계자연유산, 생물권 보전지역, 남사르 습지 등으로 인정을 받았습니다. 특히 WHO 건강도시 등 자연과 인간의 조화를 위해 많은 노력을 하고 있음을 보여주는 사례이기도 합니다. 끝으로 이렇게 소중한 지구촌 행사를 제주에서 열수 있도록 물심양면으로 지원을 아끼지 않으신 수프림 마스터 TV 관계자 여러분께 전 도민을 대표해서 감사의 말씀드립니다. 제주의 가을 하늘은 높고 푸르고 아름답습니다. 이렇게 아름다운 환경 속에서 열리는 이번 컨퍼런스가 기후변화 문제와 아이 건강에 대한 근본적이며 알찬 성과를 거둘 수 있으리라 믿으며 본 컨퍼런스에 참여를 하여 주신 모든 분들께 각별한 감사의 말씀을 드리며 오늘 좋은 시간 되시기를 바라마지 않습니다. 감사합니다. Thank you, Governor, for your encouraging words. Jeju Province is a special self-governing province which can independently develop her own policies. As a result, Jeju has been able to take courageous and leading steps to halt climate change and has become a shining example for the world to follow. Our next guest is Mr. Yang Song-un, Superintendent of Jeju's Special Self-Governing Office of Education. <웃음> 안녕하십니까? 아이 건강과 지구촌이 지속 가능을 위해 애쓰고 계신 모든 분들이 노력해 찬사를 우선 보냅니다. 제주에서 국제 컨퍼런스가 이루어질 수 있도록 협조해 주신 스프림마스터 TV 관계자님들에게도 진심으로 깊은 감사를 드립니다. 본 컨퍼런스에서 지구온난화, 자원이 고갈, 아이들 건강 악화를 지구촌이 3대 과제로 설정한 것에 저 역시 공감하는 바입니다. 특히 아이들이 건강 악화를 지구촌이 과제로 설정한 것에 대해서 깊은 고마움을 느낍니다. 저는 제주 학생들이 안전과 건강, 학력을 책임지는 위치에 있는 사람입니다. 그래서 우리 아이들이 건강하게 성장할 수 있도록 친환경 우리 농산물 학교 급식에 힘을 쏟고 있으며 학생 건강 체력 평가제 등을 도입하여 
청소년 체력 증진에 힘 기울이고 있지만은 문제 해결은 그리 쉽지만은 않습니다. 우리 희망과는 달리 아이들이 비만, ADHD, 게임 중독, 아토피 등 생활습관성 질병은 점점 더 늘어나는 추세입니다. 전문가에 따르면 이런 질병들은 인류의 생활문 내의 총체적 반영이므로 이 문제를 해결하려면 지역, 국가, 인류 공동체가 패러다임의 전환을 위해 함께 노력해야 한다고 생각합니다. 부디 제주 컨퍼런스가 아이들이 건강을 중요하게 생각하는 분위기를 전 세계에 전파하여 배가 배고파 우는 아이들과 생활습관성 질병을 겪는 아이들이 없는 희망이 지구촌을 만드는 계기가 되기를 진심으로 기원하는 바입니다. 여러분 고맙습니다. Greetings to you all, participants of the Children's Health and Sustainable Planet Conference, which is being held in Jeju Island, South Korea, a beautiful part of this world. I've been to South Korea in, uh, on several occasions, and I'm sure that the beautiful surroundings in which you are meeting will inspire you to deal with this particular theme effectively, so that not only can you in your own lives make a difference, but actually spread the message whereby others can also make a difference. So my very best wishes to you. I hope you have an extremely successful conference. I would first like to express my encouragement for the one day a week organic vegan program. I think anything we can do to move towards nature and closer to nature is going to be of great benefit to human society. I'm quite concerned about the lack of action and in fact the insensitivity to the problem of climate change. We know that if we don't take action early enough and adequately enough, we're going to see some very harmful impacts of climate change all over the world. Unfortunately, some of these will take place in the poorest, the most vulnerable regions and for the most vulnerable communities on Earth. And therefore, I think we have a moral and an ethical reason to take action by which we reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases. Now, one particular area where we can make a difference is in terms of changes in lifestyles. Of course, the question could be asked, what changes in lifestyle? There are lots of things that we can do in our daily lives, including the use of energy in the home for transportation and for various other activities as efficiently as possible. But one particular area where I think there are huge benefits is in terms of reduction of meat consumption. I personally believe that both human beings and the planet would be much healthier if we were to cut down on meat consumption. And in particular, I would suggest that the human race should gradually do away with eating red meat because that clearly 
has the largest emissions of greenhouse gases associated with the entire cycle of red meat production and consumption. So I think the time has come when we have to bring about a shift in our diets whereby we reduce the consumption of meat, particularly red meat. Uh, a lot of people ask me questions on how their children and how they themselves would get adequate protein if they are going to be dependent only on uh, an organic vegetarian diet. And my answer is that I can give, get you two consultants who will give you that uh, response. And those two consultants are called the elephant and the horse. These are two animals who consume nothing but uh, plant material and they certainly don't lack in proteins. So I would like to submit that if we can shift towards a much lower consumption of meat, we would be much happier, we would be much healthier and so would the planet. Of course, when it comes to changing diets, changing lifestyles, I think the feeling has to come from within. I don't think this is an area where government orders or government initiatives can really make a difference. Of course, government should certainly impose taxes on those activities or those products which impose uh, huge environmental costs on society, both locally as well as globally. But in the ultimate analysis, I think it is NGOs, it is civil society, and it is the community itself that has to create awareness on what the benefits of a reduced meat consumption pattern would actually be. And I would submit that NGOs, civil society, and people at large must get involved in this uh, campaign to bring about understanding of the benefits of eating much less meat. And I want to compliment so many of the NGOs, so many of those who are carrying out this campaign, and I'd like to give you my encouragement and my very best wishes. Thank you very much. We have to show a particular sensitivity to children who are most vulnerable to climate change because we have to accept the fact that children uh, whose future has to be safeguarded, who depend on the sustainability of natural resources and ecosystems on this planet, are also unfortunately the most vulnerable. For instance, as a result of climate change, there would be much more disease, there will be more floods, more droughts, more heat waves, and clearly children would be the most vulnerable subjects of this particular trend that we are going to see. It's also true that uh, when it comes to uh, planning the future of children, if this planet is going to see much worse impacts of climate change than we are witnessing today, we are not giving our children a good future. And I don't think it's fair for us to uh, squander these opportunities for preserving all the natural resources of this planet by satisfying our own immediate needs, particularly since those needs are really misplaced. They don't really do the human race any good. So I would appeal to all those who are concerned about the future of their children to see that firstly we protect them from the worst impacts of climate change and secondly that we ensure we leave behind a planet where the natural resources, where all the beautiful things that nature has provided us can be preserved and maintained for their benefit and for the benefit of their children. So this would be my appeal and I hope those of you who are viewing this 
would take that to heart and do something about it. Thank you very much. Thank you for those very inspiring words, Dr. Rajendra K. Pachari. Dr. Pachari has significantly inspired several of the actions mm-hmm. taken up by the Jeju province, and we will be hearing more about that uh, later in the conference. Next, we have Mr. Satindra Bindra, the Director of Communications of the United Nations Environmental Program, which established the IPCC. Well, I'm delighted to hear of this conference because if we live healthily, if, if the planet is nurtured by this current generation, that means people don't recklessly go about with their carbon habits, then what it means for the next generation and for children is that they'll have a real crack at success. They'll live healthier lives, they'll live more meaningful lives because what they need really is clean water, fresh air. And if they don't get that, then... What are we doing to the next generation? So I think this conference is really, really important, and I wish all the participants and the organizers great success. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Satinder Bindra. Next is Dr. Carolyn Lukensmeyer, founding president of Global Voices, an organization that supports decision-makers. She was also a consultant to the White House Chief of Staff for nine months during the Clinton years. I'm delighted to honor your presence in Cheshire Island for the conference. What I hope while you're working together, all thousand of you, is that you can develop a strong statement to the rest of the world about what we actually know. It is children's health indicators that show up most quickly in terms of the pollution and the issues of the way in which our environment is degraded. In the famous metaphor of the canary in the mine, which is the bird who dies when the air is not strong enough, it's the same with our children. And what you're doing together at the Children's Health and Sustainable Planet can make a difference to ensure that world leaders, governments, and everyone on the planet takes immediate, short-term, and long-term action to ensure that our young people's health is safe and that we live on a planet that is sustained. Thank you. Thank you for your encouraging remarks, Dr. Lucas Meyer. Many people have visited South Korea to encourage global actions on climate change, including many children. We have collected voices from children who very recently came to Korea for climate change activities. Let's hear from them. Now it is the time to act. If not here, then where? If not now, then when? If not us, then who? For many people, climate change, they think like it's melting of glaciers. What we can do to stop that? It will melt. But it's not that. We individually can really do a lot of things. I'll try to uh, take each and every possible action from my side. Please start now. Sea levels could rise. People in the coastal areas, especially in Africa and South America, could lose their homes. 
I became an, uh, a vegetarian when many of my friends were vegetarian and uh, I asked them why and they told me that it was because of the environment. If we don't save it now, the, our future generations will have no place to live. There are no political and geographical boundaries for environmental problems. Blaming any nation for any problem is of no use until we can have any possible action. We children expect you politicians to come up with sustainable solutions to the ongoing climate change and global warming. Be vegetarians and save the environment. Children all around the world, wherever you are, on every corner of the globe, should take care for the environment. Even if you're not talking, you should do something, a little bit to help the planet. Because in a few years' time, we're, gonna, we're not going to enjoy our planet. We'll be, the air will be polluted, there will be diseases all around the world, and it won't be safe. Please save their life and save their birds. Vegetarianism reduces animal consumption and energy consumption. Be veggie! Go green! Save the planet! Go veggie! Go veggie and save the world! Be veggie! Such lovely, lovely mm -hmm. voices from the children. Did you see their beautiful faces? How can we not respect them and protect them? I absolutely loved them. Um, their voices really touched my heart. To respond to the sincere wishes of the children, highly distinguished experts from around the world are presenting their valuable messages for us today, some in person, some via video. This is a very rare chance to hear the best of the best experts who are speaking for us, for our children, and the planet. First is Mr. Jof Ud Roy, the manager of the Climate and Global Sustainability Unit for the Netherlands Environmental Assessment Agency, who has done extensive research on the relationship between climate change and dietary change. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Joop Oudeloois. I'm a researcher at the Netherlands Environmental Assessment Agency. It's a pity I can't be here at this very beautiful island, so I'll have to make my contribution by screen. Probably the most difficult issues the world is facing today are climate change and the loss of nature and biodiversity. For 10 to 15 years, the world is concerned and seriously tries to deal with climate change. The focus is strongly directed uh, towards energy use and fossil fuels. And climate change mitigation policies tend to focus on the energy sector, on the other hand, the uh, livestock sector receives surprisingly little attention, and I think that's an issue we have to discuss today. The livestock sector accounts for about 18% of greenhouse gas emissions. That is substantial. The livestock sector accounts for about 80% of total anthropogenic land use, and that is more than substantial. And from a dietary perspective, New insights in the adverse effects, the health effects of beef and pork, have also led to a revision of consumption recommendations. And I think that's an important issue we have to discuss today. Recently, uh, we explored the potential impact of dietary changes on achieving ambitious climate stabilization levels. And for the first time, we made an integrated analysis of all the different elements that, have, that are uh, related to uh, eating meat. And that is substitutes for meat, climate change, the possible effects on land use, health and costs. 
And we know that if we go on on a business-as-usual scenario, a livestock would double in the next 40 years and greenhouse gas emissions would go up by about 80%. Well, we found out that uh, a food transition on a global scale, meeting, eating less meat and or even a complete switch to uh, plant-based protein food, can have dramatic effects on land use. Up to 2,700 million hectares of pasture and 100 million hectares of cropland uh, can be abandoned, resulting in a large carbon uptake of land instead of being an, a source of emissions. Additionally, methane, nitrous oxide, that are potentially harmful greenhouse gases, could be reduced substantially. A global transition to a low meat diet, as recommended for health reasons, would reduce mitigation costs by about 50%. In terms of climate change, we would like to keep the global temperature below two degrees change, uh, and that will result in a um, in a, a target maximum level of about 450 ppm CO2. The mitigation cost in reaching climate targets could go up to one to two percent of global GDP, and that's about two trillion dollars a year. A scenario with no meat consumption at all would halve these costs. If we go to a a scenario with no meat at all and also no dairy products, the uh, amount of costs would not even go down with 50%, but uh, at a rate of 70 to 80%. And that's substantial. Dietary changes uh, could therefore not only create substantial benefits for human health and land use, but also play a role in uh, reducing uh, future climate change policies at a lower cost. There are many opportunities in changing a diet from meat to vegetable-based products. In our analysis, we assumed soybeans and pulses to be the main substitutes for meat and dairy products. And we included all the effects of changing land use to these type of products. So we think that it is an inclusive study which proves that the effects are uh, scientifically sound. This change in diet could happen between 2010 and 2030, and then uh, the situation would stabilize. The change in land use has a main effect that land use is no longer a source of emissions but could even become a sink of emissions. The change would result in a net contribution of one gigaton of carbon to the atmosphere and change the whole situation into a one to two gigaton absorption of uh, carbon uh, by way of changing the land use. There is room for regrowth of forests in areas that are now being used by cows and sheep for grazing, for eating grass. The biggest effects are for sure obtained uh, by reducing the amount of ruminants, that is cows or sheep. They have a less efficient digestion, resulting in uh, a large amounts of methane emissions. I think, in summary, that uh, a science says that there is convincing evidence that changing diet would really benefit climate and would really benefit our uh, preservation of natural habitats. A change is noticeable in uh, behavior of consumers and in supermarkets. There is a, um, a growing uh, diversity uh, in terms of vegetarian products, substitutes for meat that can be chosen by consumers. So I think one of the elements of change will be that consumers make their own choices and choose vegetarian products and uh, eat less meat. In summary, from what we know now, changing a diet to less or no meat is one of the lowest, lowest cost measures to help the climate change uh, targets. It's good for health, uh, in summary, and it leaves more room for nature and biodiversity. 
Thank you for your attention. Wow, isn't that incredible? World governments will save 80%, 80% of the cost to stop global warming if the world becomes vegan. It's clear that the food on our table has a tremendous impact on global warming. So, our first step to halt climate change should begin with the meals at home and at school. And yes, speaking of um, school meals, did you know that Jeju was actually the very first in South Korea to provide environmentally friendly school meals? And by doing this, they really set an example for the rest of the country. That is amazing. <laughs> What a noble province this is. And it was all made possible thanks to the strong grassroots movements and unified efforts of the NGOs in Jeju. And leading the movement is Mr. Yi Yongjun, the policy chairperson of the Jeju Coalition for Children's Health. This much-respected teacher has devoted much of his life to improving children's health. Please join us in welcoming Mr. Yi Yongjun. Ayudre 자발적 가난에 기초한 자연을 존중하는 삶과 환경기술의 지속적 발전 그리고 양육과 교육의 패러다임이 전환이 있어야 하고 전 인류의 생활 정치적 연대가 필요하다고 봅니다. 건강과 관련한 여덟 가지 요소들을 그림으로 표시해 보았습니다. 이것들은 서로 연결되어 영향을 끼치고 있는 것들입니다. 그러나 생활 패러다임의 변화로 아이들의 건강이 심각하게 악화되고 있습니다. 먹을거리가 몸을 만들고 몸이 마음을 만든다는 것은 보편적 진리입니다. 그럼에도 불구하고 먹을거리에 대해서 지나치게 우리는 소홀하게 대하고 있습니다. 아이들이 정상 발육과 건강한 삶을 위해 적정한 운동량을 확보하는 것은 선택의 문제가 아닙니다. 그리고 다음 세대를 위해서 당장 결단을 내려야 합니다. 하체 근육과 인체 오염이 어우러져서 발생하고 있는 체온저하 현상이 광범위하게 나타나고 있습니다. 즉 우리 아이들이 만성 습관성 질병을 잉태한 채 자라나고 있다라는 다른 증거이기도 합니다. 이런 질병들은 기본적으로 생활 습관성 질병입니다. 척추증만증을 예로 들겠습니다. 이 질병은 골밀도 저하와 만성적인 불안정한 자세가 주요 요인입니다. 골밀도 저하는 햇볕의 부족과 미네랄을 비롯한 미량 영양소 부족 등에 발생하는 일입니다. 이 질병 중 고치기가 가장 쉬운 질병이 아토피이고 아이들이 인생을 가장 불행하게 만들 가능성이 있는 질병은 ADHD입니다. 그리고 치료가 가장 어려운 질병은 성장기 비만입니다. 
아이들의 건강을 이대로 방치하면 2030년에 이런 일들이 벌어질 것입니다. 충동성 범죄는 몸이 건강하지 않기 때문에 발생하는 게 대부분입니다. 대재앙을 잉태한 채 기다리는 시한폭탄과 똑같은 일입니다. 아이들의 기본 건강을 위해 우리는 당장 결단을 내려야 합니다. 건강한 삶을 위해서는 어린 시절이 중요하고 그 시기에 많은 노력이 있어야 한다는 것입니다. 만성생활습관성 환자를 줄이려면 어린 시기에 적절한 대책이 강구하는 것이 적은 비용으로 큰 효과를 낼수 있습니다. 건강한 잉태 태교 출산 수유 문화와 육아를 중요시하게 생각하고 각종 정책이 만들어져야 한다는 것입니다. 어린 시절 생활습관 형성과 교정을 위한 비용을 국가가 우선적으로 집행해야 하는데 건강한 각종 만성습관성 질병의 치유는 먹을거리와 운동과 마음다스리가 명의입니다. 더 중요한 것은 올바른 생활습관을 가지면 이런 질병이 생기지도 거의 않습니다. 먹을거리는 농부와 보호자들이 중요합니다. 생활습관은 부모와 교사의 역할이 중요합니다. 아이들 건강을 위해 명의는 부모와 교사와 농부가 명의로 자리매김하면 우리 문제는 대부분 해결되려야 저는 확신합니다. 아이들 건강 문제는 사회 패러다임의 변화와 생활문화의 총체적 반영입니다. 지속가능과 신직식기반 사회를 대비하기 위해서도 새로운 패러다임이 요구되고 있는 것입니다. 먹을거리 패러다임이란 농업, 식품산업, 식생활 전반적으로 건강중심으로 맞춰 나가자는 것입니다. 식체덕지로 교육목표를 바꾸자는 것 또한 아이들이 몸과 마음과 영성이 건강을 중심으로 보통교육을 설계하자는 취지입니다. 사전 예방의 원칙은 더 이상 언급할 필요가 없을 것 같습니다. 건강생태세주발전 전략은 교육, 농업, 관광, 자연, 치유메카, 생활혁신 다섯 가지로 나누어 제안하고 있습니다. 제주가 아이들이 건강하게 자라나는 곳으로 자리매김하면 제주의 재반 문제는 자연스럽게 해결되리라 확신합니다. 특별자체란 제도를 활용, 아이들이 특별한, 특별히 건강하게 자라나는 제주를 만들면 그런 제주를 우리가 꿈꾸고 실행을 하면 가능한 일이라고 생각합니다. 생태 건강생태 제주발전 전략은 돈이 많이 들거나 과학적 지식이 많이 필요한 사항이 아닙니다. 도민사회 합의가 이루어지면 그리 어려운 문제는 아닙니다. 교육계, 농업계, 종교계가 앞장을 서고 시민사회 진영이 합의를 하고 재정당과 도의회가 정책적 대안들을 만들어내고 자치단체가 종합적인 관점에서 일을 추진하면 그것은 결코 어려운 일이 아닙니다. 우리 앞을 가로막고 있는 것은 관행에 젖어있는 생활문화와 행정풍토이고 정치문화일 뿐입니다. 자연의 세계에서 새끼를 해치는 어미는 없습니다. 그런데 만물의 영장이라는 인간이 아이들을 병들게 자라고 자라도록 방치하고 있습니다. 이는 정말 부끄러운 일이고 명백한 집단적 
범죄 행위에 불과하다고 저는 봅니다. 아이들이 건강한 제주는 선택의 문제가 아닙니다. 다음 세대를 향 우리 모두의 최선의 책무라고 생각합니다. 우리 모두가 아이들이 건강한 제주를 위해서 같이 꿈꾸길 부탁드리겠습니다. 감사합니다. 감사합니다. Thank you, Mr. Lee Young-jun. I'm very touched by your lifelong dedication to children's health. Now, Callie, let's talk about a very timely issue. Mm, something like swine flu? Yes, swine flu, or the novel H1N1 virus, which is one of the biggest threats facing humankind today. But what is the root cause of this disease? Let's find out from Dr. Michael Greger, the Director of Public Health and Animal Agriculture at the Humane Society of the United States. He is a medical doctor and a renowned expert on the many types of diseases originating from factory-farmed animals, including swine flu, bird flu, and mad cow disease. And Dr. Greger has prepared this special lecture for this conference via video. So let's take a look. According to the World Health Organization, two billion people may become infected with swine flu and our children may be at the highest risk. Normally, 90% of flu deaths are in the elderly, 65 years and older. But with swine flu, children and young adults ages 5 through 14 are more than 10 times more likely to become infected. That means 15,000 Korean children may die. Where did this virus come from? Well, the genetic fingerprint of this virus was published this summer, and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and laboratories from around the world have confirmed that the main ancestor of the current pandemic virus was the triple hybrid mutant pig-bird-human virus that emerged and spread throughout industrialized farms in the United States 10 years ago. This first hybrid mutant was found on an industrial farm in North Carolina in August of 1998 that can find thousands of pregnant pigs in metal crates so small they couldn't turn around. Thanks to long-distance live animal transport, the virus then spread throughout North America. And thanks to the export of pigs to Asia, it reached Korea by 2005. This is not the first disease to emerge from factory farms. And unless we start giving these animals more breathing room, it may not be the last. For example, China. 2005, the world's largest producer of pork suffered an unprecedented outbreak of an emerging pig pathogen called Strepsuis, which caused meningitis and deafness in people handling infected pork products. Hundreds of people infected with the deadliest strain on record. Why? Well, the World Health Organization blames in part these intensive confinement conditions. The U.S. Department of Agriculture elaborates all strep suis seems to start out harmless, asymptomatic as normal flora, but then stress due to inadequate housing, ventilation, overcrowding allows the bug to go invasive, causing infections of the brain, blood, lungs, heart, and death. Starts out harmless, turns deadly. That's what these kind of conditions may be able to do. This is not arguably how animals were meant to live. 
July 2009, just a few months ago, a strain of Ebola was reported on a factory farm in the Philippines confining 6,000 pigs. It was Ebola restin, the same strain featured in the book The Hot Zone, airborne Ebola, but doesn't seem to be able to infect people, but with enough time to mutate in pigs, who knows? So they drove them into these pits and then burned them alive. We feed antibiotics by the truckload to farmed animals. This is the total amount of antibiotics used for all of human medicine every year here in the States. Now contrast that with the amount that's just fed to farm animals just to promote growth and prevent disease in such a stressful, unhygienic, crowded environment. Millions of pounds a year. And now we as physicians are faced with these multi-drug resistant, antibiotic resistant bacteria and are running out of good treatment options, particularly in pediatric populations. As Britain's chief medical officer put it in his 2009 annual report, Every inappropriate use of antibiotics in agriculture is a potential death warrant for a future patient. Industrial animal farms have been shown to be breeding grounds for disease for at least 10 reasons. For example, because of the sheer numbers of animals, because of the overcrowding. It's like having you know, 5,000 people in an elevator and someone sneezes because of the stress crippling their immune systems. The operation in Newton Grove, North Carolina, where the ancestor of the current pandemic virus was first detected, was a breeding facility in which thousands of pregnant sows were confined in gestation crates, also known as sow stalls. These are veal crate-like uh, barren metal cages about two feet wide. These highly intelligent social animals essentially kept in a box week after week month after month for nearly their entire lives. They can develop crippling joint deformities, lameness. Not only can these pregnant pigs not turn around, they can barely move for most of their lives. Because of the lack of fresh air, the dankness helps keep the virus alive in these kind of facilities. Because there may be no sunlight. The UV rays and sunlight are actually quite effective in destroying the influenza virus. 30 minutes of direct sunlight utterly deactivates the influenza virus, but it can last for days in the shade and weeks in moist manure. And indeed, because of the decomposing fecal waste, releasing ammonia, burning the respiratory tracts of these animals, predisposing them to infection in the first place. Put these and all these other factors together, and what you have is really this kind of perfect storm environment for the emergence and spread of new so-called super strains of influenza. The public health community has been warning about the dangers of industrialized animal agriculture for years. In 2003, the American Public Health Association, the largest organization of public health professionals in the world, called for an, a moratorium on industrialized animal farming. In 2005, the United Nations called on all governments, local authorities, international agencies, told them they needed to take a greatly increased role in combating the role of factory farming, which combined with these live bird markets provide what they call ideal conditions for the virus to spread and mutate into a more dangerous form. 
In 2008, the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production, which included a former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, concluded that these so-called factory farms present unacceptable public health risks. The former director of the commission calls these industrial farms super incubators for viruses. They're a public health menace that must be stopped. Only a few thousand people have died so far of swine flu, though, although one could never really call anything that's killed hundreds of children mild, exactly. But this H1N1 virus hasn't been much worse than the regular seasonal flu so far, but this may just be the first wave. The 1918 flu pandemic was relatively mild first as well. So we're not exactly sure what happened in 1918 compared to what was to come later. This first initial uh, wave in the summer of 1918 hardly registered a blip, but it came back in the fall to kill tens of millions of people. In Korea in 1918, according to the Japanese colonial government at the time, as many as 8 million Koreans died the last time an animal flu virus jumped species into human beings. Now the worst case scenario estimate would be if the swine flu were to combine with the H5N1 bird flu, both of which have been found in pigs. So if a single pig in parts of Asia or Africa where the H5N1 bird flu virus has become endemic, if that pig becomes co-infected with both swine flu and the new bird flu, the concern is that it could theoretically produce a virus with the human transmissibility of the swine flu, but the human lethality of the bird flu. In 1918, the mortality rate of the pandemic was less than 5%. This estimate here on the right, potentially tens of millions of people dead in the next pandemic, is based on this two to th same 2 to 3% mortality rate, what the U.S. Centers for Disease Control calls a Category 5 pandemic, around 2% mortality, around 2 million Americans dead. So that's 2%. But H5N1 has so far killed over half of its known human victims. Don't even seem to get a coin toss as to whether or not one lives through this disease. Up to... 10 million Koreans come down with the flu every year. What if it suddenly turned deadly? That's what keeps everyone up at night. The possibility, however slight, that a virus like H5N1 could trigger a pandemic. That would be like combining one of our most contagious known diseases, influenza, with one of the deadliest, like crossing a disease like Ebola with the common cold. All animals deserve humane treatment. How we treat animals can have global public health implications, and these newly emerging chicken and pig flu viruses are but one example. We deny the modicum of mercy to both their detriment and potentially to ours as well. We need to end the long-distance live animal transport of farm animals, which can spread diseases around the world. We need to follow the Pew Commission's recommendations to abolish these extreme uh, confinement practices like crates for pregnant pigs as they're already doing in Europe and starting to here in the States. And ultimately, we need to follow the advice of the public health professionals and declare no more factory farm. 
Let me end with a quote from the World Health Organization. The bottom line. The bottom line is humans have to think about how they raise their animals, how they farm them, how they market them. Basically, the whole relationship between the animal kingdom and the human kingdom is coming under stress. In this age of emerging diseases, we now have billions of feathered and curly-tailed test tubes for viruses to incubate and mutate within billions more spins at pandemic roulette. Along with human culpability, though, comes hope. If changes in human behavior can cause new plagues, well, then changes in human behavior may prevent them in the future. Thank you so much for your enlightening lecture, Dr. Gregor. It showed us the clear link between factory farming and diseases such as swine flu. So it's beginning to look like the vegan way of life is better, not only for climate change, but for preventing new diseases. Yes, indeed, an organic vegan diet is the true solution for a sustainable planet. We have our next speaker, Mr. Yi Chang-hong was the director of the EM Environment Center here in Jeju. He's also a pioneer in organic farming. Let's give him a warm welcome to Mr. Lee. <웃음> 네, 안녕하십니까? EM 환경센터 이창홍입니다. 농업은 자연 환경을 변화시켜 식량을 생산합니다. 고대 문명 시기의 농업은 비옥한 삼각주의 토지에서 수탈 농업의 형식으로 행해졌습니다. 생산된 식량은 농촌에서 도시로 가져갔으나 되돌아오는 것은 없었습니다. 그로 인해 양분을 빼앗긴 토지는 사막화되고 도시는 쓰레기로 문제, 문제였습니다. 이에 토지에 무언가를 되돌려 주어야 된다는 발상으로 화학 비료가 생겼습니다. 하지만 화학 비료의 사용으로 토지는 산성화 같은 일종의 성인병에 걸려 병해충이 많아졌습니다. 그래서 농약이 발달하여 자연 생태계의 파괴는 더욱 가속되었습니다. 그리고 안전성도 문제가 되었습니다. 현재 그 대안으로 친환경 농업이 대두되었지만 고비형 저수학으로 한계가 있습니다. 오늘의 주제는 위의 농업 방식들을 극복하기 위한 대안, 즉 자, 자원순환형 친환경 농업입니다. 이는 자연 생태계의 순환 원리를 따르는 농업입니다. 자연 생태계는 복잡한 생물들의 관계를 통해 물질들이 순환됩니다. 예를 들어 비에 의해 산에서 씻겨져 내려온 양분은 여러 생물들의 상호 관계에 의해 산 정상으로 되돌아갑니다. 즉 생태계는 자원을 낮은 곳에서 높은 곳으로 다시 옮깁니다. 이렇듯 농업도 토지에서 가져간 자원이 다시 되돌아가야 그 생산성이 유지되고 농업과 관련된 생태계도 복원됩니다. 이러한 자원순환에 있어서 미생물은 동물의 변, 시체, 식물의 잔사, 암석 등 다양한 자원을 생물과 연결시킵니다. 즉 생태계의 자원순환에 있어서 총매의 역할을 합니다. 첫째, 유기물이 무기물로 변하는 것을 막고 생물들이 재이용하게 합니다. 둘째로 생태계 내의 유해한 생분들을 중화 또는 발생을 억제해 각종 자원들이 생물이 먹이로서 원활히 이용되게 합니다. 셋째로 동식물에게 유해한 병원균들의 증식을 억제하여 생태계의 건강을 유지 증진시킵니다. 
예로서 갯벌, 습직, 극지방 등의 생태계에서 미생물들은 다양한 생물들이 서식할 수 있는 환경을 형성합니다. 이러한 역할은 자연계의 모든 생태계에서 항상 이루, 이루어져 왔으나 인간이 유해물질을 사용하기에 농토 및 도시 환경에서 재구시를 하지 못하고 있습니다. 이것이 환경문제의 근본이기도 합니다. 따라서 현재 환경문제를 해결하는 과학적 방법론인 환경공학도 크게 변해야 합니다. 이러한 자연생태계와 미생물의 역할을 이해하면서 친환경농업에 대한 새로운 패러다임을 제시하고자 합니다. 기존의 친환경농업은 유해한 물질을 단지 사용하지 않는 수세적 관점을 갖고 있습니다. 화학비료 대신에 천연의 퇴비, 화학농약 대신에 천연의 농약을 사용하자고 합니다. 화학 대신 천연이라는 말을 사용할 뿐 구조적으로 기존 화학농업과 동일합니다. 하지만 새로운 자원순환형 친환경농업은 생태계의 원리를 이해하여 생태계를 적극적으로 보원하자는 관점입니다. 정균작용이 일어나 병충해가 오더라도 증가하지 못하는 농업환경, 원래의 자연생태의 상태로 되돌리는 것을 목표로 합니다. 그리고 농약과 비료가 분리되지 않고 농업환경과 농작물은 하나의 생태계 속에서 상호발전을 이룹니다. 자원순환형 친환경농업은 저비용과 노동력이 절감으로 하면 할수록 생산성이 높아집니다. 즉 농업환경을 건강한 생태계로 만들면 병충해는 문제를 일으키지 못합니다. 또한 각종 유기폐자원을 숙성형 반려를 통해 유해물질들이 없어지고 커다란 유기물들을 식물에 흡수되기 쉬운 작은 형태로 만들어 이용하면 다수확도 가능합니다. 일반적으로 다수확 품종은 건강하지 못하고 건강한 품종은 수확량이, 수확량이 떨어집니다. 그리고 병충해는 생태계의 약화와 미네랄의 불균형 및 부족에 의해 이루어집니다. 하지만 다수확과 작물의 건강성을 동시에 이룰 수 있습니다. 예를 들어 화학비료를 주면 무기태의 질소를 유기태의 아미노산으로 만들기 위해 인과 칼륨 같은 미네랄과 당분이 다량으로 소비됩니다. 그렇지만 아미노산을 작물이 직접 흡수하면 미네랄의 소비가 적어지고 당분은 축적됩니다. 따라서 미네랄의 부족 현상이 일어나지 않아 작물은 건강하게 되고 당분과 에너지가 축적되어 다수하기 가능해집니다. 이러한 현상은 새로운 것이 아니라 원래 자연스러운 것입니다. 자원순환형 친환경농업은 자연과 인류의 공생을 목적으로 하는 것으로서 보이지 않는 미생물의 생태계의 역할을 올바르게 이해하는 데서 출발해야 합니다. 이를 통해 충분한 먹거리 생산으로 인류의 기아 문제를 해결하고 안전한 농산물의 생산과 보급으로 생산자와 소비자의 건강을 증진시킵니다. 궁극적으로 생태계 내의 순환체계를 회복함으로써 환경오염문제의 완전한 해결책을 제시하는 것입니다. 감사합니다. 
To respond to these concerns, three world-renowned medical doctors have sent their valuable messages to this conference. The first is from Dr. John McDougall, a pioneering medical doctor, best-selling author, and the esteemed founder of the McDougall Program. Dr. McDougall has helped thousands of people to overcome heart disease and other critical illnesses, all without medicine. Let's hear his message for our conference. I want to thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to talk about something really important, and that's uh, children's health and children's diets. There is a diet that is correct for people. Human history probably tells that diet best. If you think about it, all large populations of successful people throughout all of recordable history have consumed diets based on starch. For example, in my part of the world, the diet of people oh, several hundred or a thousand years ago was a diet based primarily on corn. You remember the diet of Aztecs and Mayans? These were the people of the corn. And in South America, it was uh, potatoes. In the Andes, people lived on potatoes. That's what the Incas consumed. And if you look uh, further east, what you find is people in uh, Europe and uh, in the Middle East, they lived on diets of grain, barley, wheat, other types of grain were the foods of these people. And then go far east to where you live, and what has the diet of people been traditionally for thousands of years? It's been a diet primarily based on rice, or it's sometimes buckwheat, or sweet potatoes. Starch-based diets, that's what the human diet is. It's a diet based on starch with the addition of fruits and vegetables. The animal foods that come into the diet, they're tolerated, but not necessary. The best diet for kids and adults, that's a diet based on starch with the addition of fruits and vegetables. It does not include animal products. I can't think of a reason to add dairy products, cow's milk, cheese, to the diet of a person who wants to be healthy, trim, and active. I can't think of a single reason to add any kind of animal food in terms of meat, like beef or pork or chicken or fish. It adds nothing to the diet that you can't get better from starches, vegetables, fruits. That's what the science says. That's what your experiences tell you. And that's what you see when you look back historically. We've gotten away from that, and that's because of business. But we can change back, and we can do it for ourselves as well as for our children. Our children need a good start in life. So what I would encourage you to do, all of you listening, is to find out what the truth is and take action. Yeah, these are the most important people in our lives, these little kids are. But they deserve our efforts to make sure we're doing the right thing, particularly when it comes to diet. And you will discover, if you take the trouble, that the right diet for kids is a starch-based diet with fruits and vegetables. And they'll like it too. They already like these foods. They like simple foods, starch foods, they're comfort foods. So let's make it a worldwide effort to make changes that are important for everybody. Thank you for this opportunity. Be veg, go green, and save the planet. Thank you, Dr. McDougall, for your time and dedication for public health. Our next distinguished speaker is Dr. Neil Bernard the founding president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, or PCRM, president of the Cancer Project and the Washington Center for Clinical Research, and an adjunct associate professor of medicine at George Washington University, USA. He is also a vegan. Let's now hear his specially prepared message. 
I want to say a big warm welcome to all the participants in today's conference. Children today have the advantage of having more foods available than ever before. We know more about nutrition than ever before. But unfortunately, sometimes what children actually eat is not as healthful as it should be. And that's because there are also more unhealthy foods available than ever before. So we need to really help them. So what to eat and what to avoid. The foods that are healthful for children, I think of them as being in four groups. We refer to these as the new four food groups. Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and the bean group, or you might call it the legume group, beans, peas, and lentils. These four groups together provide plenty of protein. They provide plenty of calcium and iron. They, have, they are very rich in vitamins and in minerals and lots of healthy fiber. They don't have any animal fat. They don't have cholesterol. They are a good recipe for good health. The most important thing, though, for children is not just to eat foods that keep them healthy while they're children, but it's to learn good health habits, good eating habits, that they can carry with them into adulthood. If children learn healthy eating right from the start, they carry a wonderful gift with them and they're better able to take care of their own families when they're adults. Well, I have to say, some of the very foods that I grew up with are, are perhaps the most important things to set aside. Meats, dairy products, eggs. These foods have cholesterol, they have animal fat, and these foods cause a lot of problems. First of all, these foods are linked to heart problems. If you could look inside the arteries of a typical American boy or girl, before they finished high school, many of them have the beginnings of heart disease already. They're only 15 or 16 years of age, but because of all the meat, cheese, uh, other dairy products, and eggs they've been eating, unfortunately, their arteries are starting to get clogged. Over the long run, though, these same foods increase the risk of cancer, particularly breast cancer, prostate cancer, and colon cancer. These things are much less likely to happen on people who are following totally plant-based diets. And what has the children themselves worried and their parents worried is that kids who eat a meaty diet tend to be heavier than other kids. Now, many well-meaning parents will say, we want our children to drink milk or eat meat. What they're thinking of is maybe this will help their kids to grow taller or to be stronger. But I have to say, researchers have looked at this very question. And the children who eat meat and dairy products are not any taller than other kids. What they are is wider than other kids, meaning they are more likely to be overweight. Researchers have looked at thousands of children and shown that those children who grow up on a totally vegan diet, meaning a diet with no animal products at all, they're just as tall and healthy as other kids. In fact, they are healthier, but they're more likely to stay in a good, healthy body weight. In many countries throughout North America, South America, and particularly today throughout Asia, we are seeing an explosion in meat intake, in dairy consumption. And so that means more and more farms are springing up and the population overall is less healthy than it was when more uh, healthful plant-based diets were the norm. If this trend continues, what we will see is not only more influenza outbreaks, we'll see more heart disease, much more cancer, and shorter lifespans. What this means really is a tragedy that people who wanted to live a long, healthy life, 
and to bring up their children to be able to live in as healthful a way as possible will never be able to realize that dream. And it's because we've bought into foods that have lurking in them, cholesterol, animal fat, and other problems that really can exact a terrible price that nobody was counting on in advance. Let me also say a word for parents, teachers, other people who are involved in schools. Schools have sometimes had trouble really serving the most healthful foods. Many of them have perhaps had a misimpression that they need to give children milk in school or need to give them meat. Schools in the United States and some other places on the globe are now featuring healthy, completely vegan meals for children because they realize that when you don't uh, provide the milk and the meat, kids do much better. They're healthier. They're less likely to come uh, up with infections. I'm thinking about things like ear infections, asthma, and other problems. They are more likely to stay in a healthy weight, and they are less likely to fall asleep in the afternoon. I have to say, when kids get a big, greasy, sugary meal, it's pretty hard for them to stay awake in the afternoon. It's hard for them to concentrate. And on the other hand, when children are fed the most healthful meals, they have the energy and the attention span to carry them all the way through the day. So in conclusion, when we think about our children, they are our most precious resource. And unfortunately, the pressures on parents, on teachers, and on the kids themselves are more intense than they've ever been. There are more and more businesses out there trying to sell unhealthy food, and we can understand why that is. But to the extent that we can put healthy foods on children's plates, if we can have policies in our government, if we can have practices in our schools that every child, no matter how disadvantaged, has the ability to have a healthful meal every single meal, every single day, we are going to be investing in the health of the next generation. I thank you so much for helping us all to do that, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Neil Bernard. Our next esteemed guest speaker is Dr. Joel Furman. He is called the Doctor of Doctors in the USA, and his long-term best-selling books, Eat to Live, Fasting and Eating for Health, and Disease-Proof Your Child, are very popular here in Korea. He has influenced many nutritional studies, as well as the vegetarian movement in Korea. And when we invited Dr. Furman to speak, he said he was very happy to connect with Korean people. Let's now hear from Dr. Joel Furman. Greetings. Greetings to the beautiful Jeju Island and the honorable governor and officials, the honorable guest, Supreme Master Ching Hai, the representative NGOs, parents, teachers, students, and other participants. I'm so happy to be here. I'd like to talk to you today about what an impact nutritional excellence can make for you and people around the world. We can win the war against disease. We can have healthier nations and a healthier South Korea. Right now, we are spreading American fast food companies and processed foods are spreading all over the world. And people are becoming more overweight, more obese, having more heart attacks, more diabetes, more strokes, and even more cancer. The good news is, is that nutritional science has advanced to the point where we can have people not have heart attacks. We can win the war against cancer. 
We can stop people from having strokes, and as they get become more elderly, they don't have to become demented in their later years. And in healthy populations with low medical costs, with with a dramatically more successful and happier population, without the fear of these diseases. And what we've learned, the secrets that we've learned to protect ourselves, have to do with nutrients. And there are two types of nutrients. There are macronutrients, and the macronutrients contain calories, and those are called fat, carbohydrate, and protein. And if you eat too many macronutrients, too much fat, too much carbohydrate, and too much protein, we can become overweight, and we can promote aging and promote heart attacks and strokes. Now, food also contains micronutrients, and micronutrients do not contain calories. They're things like vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals. About 80 years ago, in 1930, scientists first discovered 14 vitamins and about 20 different minerals, and everybody said, "Wow, this is great! We can help people live longer, and help people be much healthier." And what happened between 1935 and 2005 is that heart attack rates went up all over the world, stroke rates went up, and cancer rates went up every single year for 70 years straight. We didn't realize until about 15 years ago. That the third type of micronutrients called phytochemicals were missing, because the third type of micronutrients called phytochemicals are not found in processed foods and they're not found in animal products, but they're found in fruits and vegetables. So when we thought that we could take processed foods and add a few vitamins and minerals to it, or take a vitamin supplement and think we're getting enough, we were mistaken, because now we know that every tomato has a thousand different nutrients in it. Every head of cabbage, every piece of lettuce, every cucumber, every bean or berry or sprout has hundreds, even thousands of nutrients that are so important to protect our precious health. So, if we sum up what we've learned in the last 15 years in the field of nutritional science, we've realized that we have to eat a diet that's very high in nutrients, very high in micronutrients, including not just the ones we discovered 70 years ago. But all the new nutrients that we're discovering, all the new findings, that full symphony of nutrients we're finding that exists in natural fruits and vegetables, beans, nuts, and seeds. So the first thing I'm saying here, I'm making the point that as a nation, countries all over the world have made tremendous mistakes as far as protecting the health of their population. The mistake we made is we thought that we could eat anything. We could eat white flour. We could eat bread. We could eat pasta. We could eat sugar. We could drink soda all day. It doesn't have to be high in micronutrients, and then we could just take a vitamin pill and be okay. And we found out it doesn't work. We actually have to eat real food. Now here's where I feel that the people of Jeju and the people of, of South Korea have a unique opportunity in human history. You have a blessing available to you with with a climate to grow healthy foods. And farmers that grow fresh fruits and vegetables, and a, and a homeland that has availability of peppers and tomatoes and cabbage and lettuce and sesame seeds. You have the availability to eat superfoods, and these superfoods could protect us against chronic degenerative and dangerous diseases, preventing medical tragedies. So you have to really eat these foods. So let's talk about this for a minute, because we're saying here is that. We have to eat a diet high in nutrients and lower in calories. So the first thing I'm saying to you is that animal products 
like chicken and meat and fish and eggs should not be the major portion of a diet. A healthy diet has to be plant-based. Most of what we eat has to get these phytochemicals from natural plant foods. So pasta, white bread, and white rice does not have in it the phytochemicals and antioxidants. In those foods, there's no significant amount of vitamin E and vitamin K and folate and bioflavonoids and lignans and plant sterols and all these phytochemicals and other carotenoids that protect against disease. In other words, what I'm saying is that processed foods, drinking soda, having sugar, having white rice and pasta and white bread are not high-nutrient foods. Those are not going to be the foods to protect your precious health because they're not rich in micronutrients. And likewise, animal products like chicken and meat also do not have the same nutrients. They're also missing the vitamin E, vitamin K, the folate, the bioflavonoids, the lignans, the phytochemicals, the carotenoids, the same nutrients that the processed foods are missing. Worldwide, we're seeing populations get most of their calories from processed foods and animal products, and they're not eating fruits and vegetables, then what are they missing? Of course, they're missing those antioxidants and the phytochemicals that are present in plant foods. And instead of going to doctors and getting um, pills to take to lower your blood pressure, and instead of taking medication to take away chest pains, and then having surgeries on people's hearts or procedures to make the blood to flow better, those do not make people live longer. The most powerful intervention, the most powerful medicine, is what you can do in your own home, in your own kitchens, in your own gardens, and what you can do with your own life to protect your precious health. It's not what doctors can do for you with medications and surgeries. What I'm saying today is that we all are in this together. If we all eat a diet, which we call it a plant-based, high-nutrient diet, we look to eat more of the foods that are highest in nutrients. And the foods that are highest in nutrients, including these micronutrients I'm talking about, are green vegetables. Green vegetables win the awards because they have more nutrients per calorie than any other food. In other words, an animal product like a piece of chicken or a piece of meat is not high in nutrients per calorie. It gives you lots of calories, but not lots of micronutrients. Now take a piece of broccoli or some cabbage or kale that also is high in protein. Because don't forget, green vegetables are high in protein. That's how come gorillas, hippopotamus, rhinoceros, elephant, and giraffes get so big because it eats green vegetables and eat a lot of protein. And green vegetables are high in protein. But here you have the protein packaged with lots of micronutrients, with the phytochemicals, with the antioxidants, with the things that make the body age slower. And we keep our youthfulness, our vigor, and our good health into later years. And if we look at the healthiest people around the whole world, and the pockets of civilization where people live the longest, it's always the people that eat the most vegetables live the longest. Let's touch on certain types of foods we want to include in our diet for optimal health. Number one is beans. Beans like kidney beans, navy beans, lentils, split peas. Beans have a, something in them called resistant starch. And resistant starch doesn't raise the glucose level. It's broken down by bacteria in the colon, and the bacteria in the colon change the resistant starch into short-chain fatty acids. And those fatty acids protect us against colon cancer. Beans promote weight loss, they give us energy, they're high in protein, and they protect us against cancer, and they're linked in the scientific studies to an enhancement of longevity in elderly people.
Number two, green vegetables. To be on a healthy diet, we have to eat some raw vegetables and some cooked vegetables. We have to eat green vegetables. Lettuce, salad, cucumbers, cabbage, the broccoli family, all those green vegetables have um, specific compounds that have been shown to protect against breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, and of course heart attacks and strokes. They're longevity producing foods. If we mix the greens and the beans now with nuts and seeds, right? Almonds, cashews, sesame seeds, sunflower seeds, they have almost magical superfoods, protective compounds that prevent against cardiac arrhythmias, irregular heartbeats. They lower your cholesterol. They make people live longer. They prevent sudden cardiac death. They stabilize the brain. And the healthy fats and seeds and nuts increase the absorption of nutrients from the vegetables and the beans. They also make the protein very complete. So it's not about just eating less fat. It's eating about more of the whole food healthy fats from nuts and seeds. Now, nuts and seeds contain a special compound called plant sterols. And these sterols have been shown to lower cholesterol levels and protect against heart attacks. But they also have a dramatic effect to protect against cancer as well. So what I do is we take some sesame seeds and maybe we'll mix it with an orange and make a dressing or a dip to put on a salad, right? Or we'll throw some seeds and nuts with some tomato sauce and we'll make a dressing, we'll make some kind of dressing or a sauce. In other words, using nuts and seeds as part of your dressings and dips is a very important part of excellent nutrition. Last, fresh fruit like oranges and berries and kiwis also contains various compounds, phenols and anthocyanins, special compounds that protect against various cancers and are important for good health. And lastly, of course, whole grains like sorghum, wild rice, brown rice, whole grain rices, whole oats, whole barley. Think whole grains, not processed white flour, not white rice and white flour, but using more whole grains. So we know now that the more vegetables and fruits and beans and nuts and seeds eaten, the longer people live and the lower the risk of heart attacks and strokes and cancers. Now, in addition to preventing these chronic diseases later on in life, it also can help people have better function in school, more attention, more alertness, more protection against diseases like, like influenza, like the flu. When we have the right kind of nutrients in our body, we're not going to get sick as often. So we have to appeal to our governors and our government, our educators and our teachers and our farmers. We have to all work together as a team to bring healthy food into the schools, to bring healthy plant foods into our homes. We're not talking about adding a little bit of fruits and vegetables to your present diet. We're talking about making fruits and vegetables the major portion of your diet, and then we'll have a healthy nation, and then we'll have a healthy population to live a long life free of medical tragedies. To conclude, on the beautiful Jeju Islands and many other fertile areas of South Korea, we have a, a unique opportunity in human history. This is a blessing. We have science and information that can enable us to live better and to live healthier and to live longer than ever before in human history. Let's take advantage of, your, of the natural bounty of the land and have, and have one of the healthiest places in the whole world. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Herman.
일단은 그 어, 이런 채식 운동이 우리 지구를 살릴 수 있는 하나의 가장 좋은 방법이라는 걸 오늘 철저히 깨달았기 때문에 저도 적극적으로 어, 참여를 할 것이고 그리고 참교육 학부모에도 아이들을 위한 어떤 교육운동 속그 건강도 마찬가지로 관심이 많기 때문에 이런 그 참교육 학부모회를 통해서 많은 학부모들에게 이것을 교육해 나갈 생각입니다. 참 오길 잘했구나 하는 생각이 들고 우리 집사람하고 인원해서 앞으로 좀 채식에 대한 것을 중점으로 식단을 강조하고 아마 이끌어갈 생각입니다. 이번 컨퍼런스를 통해서 이제 육식의 기후변화에 그렇게 큰 영향을 미칠 거라고 생각을 못했는데 그런 면에서 많이 배울 수 있는 기회가 됐었고 이제 앞으로 뭐 채식이라든지 그런 사항들도 실생활 속에서 실천할 수 있는 기회가 마련된 것 같아요.